You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. You think about the the name of Jesus and what he has done for us. Um, We can never pay that back, you know that. We can never even earn our way to heaven or, or earn the favor of God. What He has provided through His Son, through God, through His Son, Jesus, is something beyond what we could ever work for or even hope to accomplish on our own. And it's, the, the good thing is that it's based on God's faithfulness. This is what it says in Psalm 89. It says, I will sing about the Lord's Faithful love forever with my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. For I will declare faithful love is built up forever. You establish your faithfulness in the heavens. I mean, in that, just in that short passage, we see it multiple times just the, the idea that God is faithful. He's faithful. He brought you here this morning. That's a faithful work of God, isn't it? I mean, you got breath this morning. That's a faithful work of God. And so there are a lot of things that we can be thankful for. We're thankful for our breath. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's our surroundings. Maybe it's this church. Maybe it's just that we can come in this building and worship together as a corporate body in a place that's pretty comfortable. And all of that is because of what Jesus has done and, his, and God's faithfulness. Um, I want to take just a, a couple of minutes here at the very beginning, and I sent no warning of this, and therefore it is risky, and I want to just let you know it's risky. But our ladies went on a, a retreat last weekend, and God did some really good stuff at that retreat. Um, and I told you that they were staying up late playing games and all that kind of stuff, but there's more to it than that. And so what I want to do is I just want to ask if there are just a few ladies that would like to share what God did with them and their life this past weekend at the women's retreat. So this is, this is your shot. It's sort of open mic, yeah. Sort of. It's, it's controlled open mic. So we, I got the white one, John. Oh, yeah, blame it on somebody else. I see how that works. Someone else. All 
say, we can't wait too long in between. Thanks, Susan. All right, anyone else? I'm pretty sure the ladies weren't this shy at that retreat. <laughs> Just breaking out the shyness on Sunday morning. Anybody else? Let me come up here so I can see. All right, all right. So, so God does amazing things at, at places like that. And um, yeah, I'm looking over because there's laughter happening over here. And there's some kind of communication that probably has to go back to the retreat. Um, but I'm not asking. I'm Maybe when I get home, we'll see. Um, you know, God does amazing things at times like that. But God is doing an amazing work within our corporate body, within just the whole of our body as he's pulling us together, but also has given us some things that we ought to do and need to do. Um, it's, it's the idea that God has placed us here on purpose, not just to be a, a gathering of people on a weekly basis to come together and sing and, and maybe even study the Bible, but He's given us the opportunity to come together as a group of people to make a difference for Christ, to go into this world and, and be a witness to, to those that don't know Him, to be light in darkness. He's called us to do that. And so as we get ready for this weekend, we've talked about several things. We've talked about the idea that it is all about Him, that it's all about God. And it centers on Him. He gives revival, but it's for Him. And so revival happens because God calls us back to Himself. He does an extraordinary work, and it pleases and glorifies Him. Then we talked about um, this idea that it starts with us individually. That it's not just a we corporate body, but it's us individually. God working in us as a person. And so God revives you as an individual, but He also revives the person that's sitting next to you as an individual. And then collectively, together, He revives us as a church and puts us on the same path, going the same direction to do what He's called us to do in this community. The, the third one was to acknowledge the pain and just the idea that sometimes God uses pain to draw us back to Himself. You know that Israel went through these cycles, and Wayne mentioned it a little bit ago, and, and we talked about those cycles of judgment, walking away from God, judgment, and then coming back to God, and this whole revival cycle that takes place. And we know that when that takes place, that judgment takes place, it is an effort for God to draw people back to Himself. It's not just a selfish thing of punishment, but it is to draw people back into relationship with Him that they are missing out on. 
And so some of that is painful. This morning we're going to talk about kingdom treasure. And there is a thrill that goes with finding something, isn't there? If you've lost something and you find it, there's some kind of joy that kind of wells up inside, right? If you lost something, especially if you've lost it for a long period of time or you've been looking for it for a long period of time, there is a the joy that comes with that. And we kind of read about that in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus tells three different stories. He talks about a woman who lost a coin and she searches diligently throughout her house trying to find that coin. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors and she says, Rejoice with me, for I found that which was lost. And Jesus likens that unto the kingdom of God. The second story is about, is about the sheep that was lost and, and the shepherd going to find the one that was lost. And again, Jesus reminds us that there is rejoicing when that one is brought back into the fold. Then the last story in Luke chapter 10 was the story of the wayward son. You know, we call him the prodigal son. And he's that one that took the inheritance and went away to a land, spent it all, did, did crazy, stupid things with the money, ends up in pig slop, comes back to the father, and the father is waiting for the son to return. And the father runs to greet him. He runs and hugs him, both his son and the stench. And we, so we read this story, and it's this idea that when you find something of value, there should be rejoicing. Well, we may not think of prayer as much of that kind of treasure, but I want to tell you that prayer, when we figure it out and understand what prayer is, why we should pray, how we should pray, and when we should pray, that we understand that it truly is a treasure worth seeking. It truly is something that, that is great. It is something of mighty power and of great wealth and of great value. Um, I brought this chest, and, and I've been asked a couple of times what it is, and, and with, um, with our children in here this morning, uh, there's always curiosity that goes with something like this. And um, I'm not even going to open it. I'm just going to let you wonder for a while. But I, I want to tell you that when we, when we um, have something like this, the other, the other thing that goes with finding something like a treasure or a treasure chest when you move, these things come to the forefront. The other thing that comes to the forefront are keys. Now, we've moved several times in the 32 years of marriage, and everywhere we've gone, we've had keys. We've had mailbox keys. We've had house keys. We've had car keys, and some of those cars are still around. Some of them are not. And we, we've had those keys. And, and so as you move from place to place, you begin to collect keys. Well, this is what I found. I found this set of keys. And so I just kind of looked through it. Now I want to tell you there's some, there's some interesting keys. Here's a key, here's a key ring that's got um, the, the tabs like the, um, the MVP card. And it's got another shopper's card for another place that evidently my son got a hold of one time and decided the cheaper gas was his privilege and not ours. Um, <laughs> So that, that would be one thing. And so that's, a, that's one set of keys. And, and then I think there's a lawnmower key in here. Um, Caleb, you'd appreciate that. And, and, um, and then there's this key. Let's see if I can do this right. I'm pretty sure this is neither mine nor Deb's. 
Um, I'm guess if I had to guess, I would say this is my son's. I don't know exactly what it goes to, but anytime there's a um, a defeated chicken, um, it's probably his. So these keys have had, or at least had, purpose. And whether one of these keys opens this chest or not, I'm not real sure. But I know that if we were to find the treasure that we're looking for in prayer, we'd understand that there is great value, and we have to have a key to find that treasure. To open this chest ought to be a key. To find the treasure that is prayer, I want to look at some keys this morning. Some different keys that will kind of open that up and help us to understand how valuable it is. And so um, we can rejoice that, that our Heavenly Father permits us access to Himself. You realize that is a privilege. It's not something we, we look at and we say, oh, prayer, it's okay. Prayer is a privilege of access to a holy, almighty God. 1 John 5.14 says that we can ask. Hebrews 4.16 says that we can come before Him with confidence. And we come with confidence because of who Jesus is in us. It's a privilege, but it is also a weapon. Look at, look at the quote from Samuel Chadwick. I'm going to put it on the screen. It says this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Now, that's a great quote. And it just reminds us that, that prayer ought to be part of what we do a major part of what we do as a church. And so I want to go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Because in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah prays a prayer. And it's not a prayer of, God, I hope you do this. It's more a prayer of, God, I have confidence that you, by your reputation, are going to accomplish this because you have chosen these people. And you've chosen them to represent you and to bring you glory. So this is what it says, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, when I heard these words, so he'd received the report, I sat down and wept. When I heard the report, I sat down and wept. There was immediacy in his action. First thing he did, it wasn't like, I need more information. It was, I sat down and I wept because I understood, immediately understood, what the consequences of broken walls and burned gates were to the nation. I mourned for a number, number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he was persistent, and he was consistent. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Now, who could have Nehemiah gone to? Well, he could have gone to the king, right? Because he was, he was kind of working for a king. And kings have lots of influence and power and sway. But he didn't. He went straight to God. He says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. 
Please remember that you commanded your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. It's a confession, but it's also an understanding of God's holiness, of God's might. You remember Jeremiah 11 from last week, 29-11? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and to help you succeed. That whole idea was this backside of being in exile. Says they are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name or to see glory come to you. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. And he's talking about the king, understanding the character of God, but also the God's ability to work on behalf of Nehemiah before the king. And then this section wraps up, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. I was in the presence of somebody with power and authority. But God, I come to you as one with more power and more authority. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, I pray that as we look at several passages... And think about the idea of prayer and this treasure that you've placed in front of us. God, I pray that we will have the chest open. And Father, we will access what you allow us to access in such a way that it bends your ear. And so God, teach us this morning. Draw us to yourself. That we may be the people of God that you desire us to be from this corner and in our community as we, wherever we go. And Father, we know that that starts in our conversation with you. As we plead before you, as you share from your word, as you share from your heart to us. And so God, use this time, redeem this time for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if we as the body of Christ here at Ebenezer, want to do extraordinary work, if we desire to do that, if we want God to do something in us and through us, then it's only going to come through prayer. It's only going to come as we, as we give in to God and say, God, what do you want? In fact, the essential ingredient to any extraordinary manifestation of God throughout history has been through prayer. And so it's interesting to read some of the quotes from people who've said, this is how important prayer is. E.M. Bounds wrote this, Prayer is the greatest of all forces because it honors God and brings Him into active aid. And then uh, a guy by the name of Doug Knapp, and I don't know if you know Doug Knapp, he was a, a missionary uh, to Tanzania. And there's a report in the Baptist Press in 1994 that records what happened in Tanzania the year before. And so the year before, it says that Doug Knapp personally baptized 4,000 out of the 5,000 converts in Tanzania. And so this is what Doug Knapp said. He wrote a book called Thunder in the Valley, and this is what he said. He said, prayer is the most powerful instrument that God has placed 
in the hands of his people. It's incredible. So, so Doug Knapp and Ian Bounds, and, and we would look at Scripture and say the same thing, that we could put money and we could put buildings, we could put people, we could put all these things in the hand of, hands of a group of people and say, you ought to be able to accomplish tons of stuff as a church. And yet, at the same time, accomplish nothing because it is not of God. Prayer is the essential ingredient. Money is not the essential ingredient. This building is not the essential ingredient. Even our health is not the essential ingredient. The essential ingredient is prayer. And when we come before God in prayer, we access the power and the we access the power and all the heart that goes into God's passion for us and for the community that doesn't know him. Prayer is a powerful thing. And so when should we pray? When should we pray? Well, Paul would say, pray without ceasing or pray constantly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 But the default for years has been, let's pray at church. Right? If I'm not going to pray anywhere else, I can pray at church. So we will schedule prayer times. Now I want to tell you, there's some scheduling of prayer times around this revival thing, but it's not just because it's just a time that we do. We schedule those prayer times just as an emphasis to draw us or to get us in a frame of mind for accessing God more regularly. And so we ought to pray. And as we approach this revival, we will pray more. We'll talk about this even again next week. Because there's some some specific things that are being done in the area of prayer getting ready for mid-April. But I want to tell you, we need to be praying all the time. We need to constantly be in prayer. And it ought not to be one of those things where we say, hey, we're going to pray, so if the three people that are burdened by that would please come in a group of 300, if those three would show up, we'd be okay. Now, it takes the body of Christ praying, collectively praying, corporately praying, but praying individually as well. We can't take this for granted. We need not push or guilt into or drag along with the encouragement to pray. Because prayer is one of those things that ought to be part of our life because we belong to Christ. Just ought to be part of it. If Paul's exhortation has meaning, if Nehemiah's prayer gives us any insight, then we have to examine the winds of prayer and we can look at that through the eyes of the psalmist. So if, would you turn to Psalm 3 with me? And let's look at this very quickly this morning. Psalm 3, verse 1, it says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Now listen to that phrase, there is no help for, for him in God. And then the psalmist writes, Selah. What does Selah mean? We've talked about it before, just, just think about that. Adrian Rogers says it means to pause and just ponder that. In essence, stop. Just stop. What does that word say? What does, what does this passage say? How my foes increase, there are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. It's this group of people that look at the psalmist and say, God is not even present. That's a scary thing. 
to have God not present? Moses kind of pushed back on that. He said, if God, you're not going with me, I ain't going either. Yet they're saying there's no help for him in God. And so if we stop and we think about that for just a second, people are looking at David. And he's being chased by his son, Absalom. And David writes, as everybody looks on, me being the anointed king, Absalom chasing me to kill me. People are looking on and saying, God's not even helping him. It must be bad. But that's not where David ends. David doesn't end with that. See, he knew something. It's a change of mindset that, that we have to have. And see, for, for the group outside the walls of the church, those that don't belong to Christ, when they look at the church, they wonder where God is. And in fact, they make claims like God doesn't even exist. Or we're going to live as though God doesn't exist. It's a whole relativism in our society that says, I can do whatever I want because God is not present. Yet God is. See, maybe it's the idea that the church has become so complacent in their activity that essentially they become apathetic to what God has called them to do. We need not be complacent. We need, need not be so busy in thinking that's where the answer is that we forget what God has called us to do as believers in Christ. So how are we going to be effective? Well, here's what it says in the next section. Psalm 3, verse 3, it says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. We have to start walking in victory or start living out like we are victorious because we belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We walk around with defeated heads because the world around us seems to have such a loud voice. When the truth is, we, we serve one who's greater than any president or any king. That was the idea that Nehemiah had. God, you are greater than the king, the king that I'm serving right now, so I'm going to go to you. We have that same access to that same king that is above all and ends all. So why do we walk around in defeat? But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and He answers me from His holy mountain. God, although you may be seemingly over there, I know that you answer. And so when I lift my voice, when I begin to share the burdens that are on my heart, when I begin to cry out for revival, whatever that cry is that goes up to you, I understand that you are there, you are hearing, and you will answer. God's not hiding from us. And then the psalmist says again, Selah. Think about it. Pause and just ponder that. God is accessible. He hears and He answers. Second thing we have to understand is that when our, our, we pray when our capabilities are inadequate. We can't do it on our own. We can't muster up revival. There's no capacity for us to accomplish what is needed. No resources available to suffice the need. So we cannot muster up enough energy, enough willpower, enough force, enough control, enough excitement, or enough commitment to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. 
So let's just stop for a moment. And let's see, what does God want to do? What, what are you thinking about at this, at this spot? If God's going to work in your life, what does that look like? Is there a situation beyond your ability to fix that you're dealing with? Is there a problem too complicated for you to solve? And we could do this evaluation in our own lives and say, God, there is this that's happening and I'm coming before you because you're really the only one that can solve it. You're the only one that can fix it. Maybe it's a marriage that is not going as well as you want it to go. You say, we can come to church and we can put on a good marriage face, but the reality is there are a lot of marriages maybe represented in this room that as soon as you walk out the doors of the church, you finish your Sunday lunch, it goes back to some normalcy that is not normal according to Scripture. You say, God, I don't really know what to do with this marriage situation, but I don't like it and I want to come to you because I can't fix it. Maybe it's a career unsatisfied. Maybe you're abused in your place of work, unfulfilled. But you see no way out of that particular place in a way that would provide for your family. Maybe it's the caretaking of a child or a sibling, or a parent, or a grandparent that just burdens you. And it's something too great for you to accomplish on your own. We're often left feeling helpless and frustrated. We are inadequate and in need of God's intervention. So we ask, have to ask this question. Are we praying? How much do we pray? Do we really pray? about those things that are too big for us. See, that's the bad news. Is the, the present reality is it's tough. It's hard. But there is good news. The psalmist goes on to say, starting in verse 5, he says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Basically, you woke me up and gave me breath. And nobody killed me while I was sleeping. I'm not afraid of the thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Then the psalmist writes, Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May, you ble- may your blessing be on your people. Third thing I want us to understand is that we pray when our confidence rests in God. When our confidence rests in God. Nehemiah's go-to was God. It wasn't somebody else. David understood the sovereignty of God. The breath from the rising, from his rising in the morning to his going to sleep, and even while he was asleep, was God sustaining him the whole time. See, the blessing of salvation and revival comes as we trust God and have confidence in God to do what only God can do. Psalm 88, 1 and 2 says, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry before you night and day. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. We may be in this spot today and, and think, you know, if I pray, it may make it all the way up to the beams of this building, but it's really not going to go any further. I want to tell you that our access is into the throne room of God. We have access because of the blood of Christ. And if you've trusted Christ 
as your Savior, then you have access to Almighty God. If you have not, then you don't. You can pray all day long. And if you don't have access through Christ, then you are praying to the wood on the top of the building. It is a great thing when somebody comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior because they can pray and know that they are accessing the throne room of Almighty God, knowing that He cares and loves us. And so we pray when conditions demand action, when, capabilities are ina- when our capabilities are inadequate, and when our confidence is in God. So how do we pray? We're going to run through these super quick. So if you're taking notes, super fast right. And I know that's not even good English. I should have swapped that around. But Okay, right fast. James 5, 16b, and we'll start halfway through that verse, through 18, says the urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its, in its effect. Prayer of a righteous man avails much is another way we've heard that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. That's not bad. Then he prayed again. Skies gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, whoever was praying for rain during this last year, slow down, okay? And whoever's praying for drought now because of all the rain, slow down just in case all right so the so the question in this if if elijah could pray and that would be accomplished and he was a righteous man how do we go before god so maybe the question is motive why are we going before god you remember what the mother of james and john asked jesus they said we i want to ask you one thing and this was essentially a prayer if you will if you if you believe that would a request before God is a prayer. They came before Jesus and said, Hey, can my, can my son sit on your right and your left? Would that be okay, Jesus? He's like, mm, Are you sure you really want to ask that? And so there was a question about motive. And, and I think the reason that we don't get what we, what we desire, a lot of times it goes back to motive. Why do we want that? Why do we want revival in a church? Is it so that more people will fill the pews so this building looks fuller on Sunday morning? Is it so that we'll have more money in the coffers of the church so that we can do some of the things that we'd like to do? What is the motive? The motive for revival ought to be that God's people are in in such communion with Him that there's no lack of fellowship. And if it means that this group of people that are in the room start living out what the gospel says to live out, and it results in people coming to know Jesus Christ and filling the pews, that's great. But it's not just about people in the pews for the sake of bodies. It's for the sake of relationship and for the sake of eternity, for the sake of the kingdom of God. So we have to check our motives. James 4.3 says you, don't, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Comfort can be an evil desire. And if we are motivated by the comfort that comes along with more people in the building, if we're motivated by that because it means the air can stay on and the lights can stay up and we can buy that new, new whatever it is, Because we have more people, that's the wrong motive. 
We need to have the right motive before God and say, God, I'm going to ask and I'm going to do it this way. So six adjectives describing how we should pray. The first one is immediately. Immediately, like Nehemiah, there's no reason to procrastinate. We immediately go before the Father and say, God, this is what the need is. The second thing is repentantly. We go to God in repentance saying, God, I need to repent before you. My sin gets in the way. It's what we see in Nehemiah when he says, I and my fathers have sinned before you. We realize what you promised, but we still walked away. And recognizing that God has the ability to forgive and restore. I heard 1 John 1, 9 this morning in the Sunday school class across from my office. If you confess, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wipe that slate clean. Hebrews 11:6 and this is where it says when we come before God him we come before him repentantly understand we come before him in faith that it pleases God Hebrews 11:6 now without faith it is impossible to please God third thing is we come before him biblically we understand that there are a ton of promises in God's word and when i say a ton i'm not talking about 2000 pounds worth so there's not 2,000, there's way more than 2,000. My, my understanding, and I read some of the, the, the average, there's, there's about seven promises per page in your Bible. That's what it averages to. There are a lot of promises of God. Promises of God are very, there are some of them that, that we would cling to wholeheartedly. Like adopted as heirs. Becoming a child of God, John 1. To be protected we read Psalm 23, we understand that we are protected and provided for. John 10, this whole idea of abundant life in Christ, um, that our needs would be met according to Matthew 6, that we seek first the kingdom of God and, not, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. New life. We are a new creature in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17. We pray with confidence because God is a faithful God. That's the first thing. But He's a God that has promised us. And so we go before Him and just say, God, You promised this in Your Word, just like Nehemiah did. You promised this. God, I just want to remind you that You promised it. I'm relying on that. And I'm coming before You in humility, understanding that I can trust You. Fourth thing is we pray expressly. You may say, well, what does that mean? We pray for the glory of God, that He be glorified for His fame and His glory, for His reputation. Psalm 72, 17 through 19 says this, May His name endure forever. As long as the sun shines, may His, name, may his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by Him and call Him blessed. May the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders, be praised. May His glorious name be praised forever. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Amen and amen. God is deserving of our praise. Fifth thing is that we pray freely. Or we pray with open hands. We say, God, whatever you desire, it's relinquishing control of what we desire in light of or in lieu of what He desires. And that we want to be an instrument of His mighty work. Psalm 90 says that. God, help us 
Help us to live and number our days so that those that come before us can see the work of your hands. The sixth thing is we pray persistently, not giving up easily. Nehemiah was slightly persistent. You realize there is a gap between the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer and him actually going before Artaxerxes. Does anybody know how long it was? And some of you are flipping pages real quick. Seven months. I just, let's just get to it. Seven months before that conversation with Artaxerxes took place. From the time he heard about the broken walls and the burned gates and praying and mourning and fasting and weeping and doing all those things and going before God and saying, God, this is it. And we read it, and we read it in 30 seconds, but understand that he prayed that for seven months. He was persistent in going before God. We need to be persistent in our going before God. If we want revival to take place, it's not going to take place if we say a prayer and say, well, I'm done with that, that's good, that task is done, I've checked it off my list. It's got to be something that we're persistent about. Satan renders the Christian ineffective in life if he can create any degree of relational separation between the believer and God. Four obstacles that Satan uses are apathy. We don't want Satan to use these things, but he does. Apathy, and I just don't feel a burden. He uses weariness. I'm not going to even ask you to raise your hand. How many of you in here are tired this morning? Some of you go, I come to church so I can relax and take it easy, and I don't have to do yard work. I don't have to do some other job. We get weary, and in turn, we don't pray like we ought to. We're too tired. We're too busy. Busyness is the third one. I don't have time. It was Martin Luther that said, I've got so much to do, to, to do today, I need to spend more time in prayer. And it seemed that he was able to accomplish all that God asked him to do. Busyness gets in the way, and Satan uses pride. I can do it on my own. And we may be subject to all four of those, and you may be able to add to that list and say, yeah, there's like four or five other things that come to mind when I think about what Satan uses to keep me from praying. That may be true. And so I don't want to discount that, but I want to tell you that, that there are lots of things that can get in the way of us coming before a holy God and praying. And Satan uses every single one of them. Because he wants to disturb the relationship between us and the Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great authorities in revival, said this, In movements of the Spirit, generally the very first thing that happens, and which eventually leads to a great revival, is that one man, or a group of men, and you can put any, anybody in that, phrasing you want to but this is what he said one man or a group of men suddenly begin to feel this burden and they feel the burden so much that they are led to do something about it how many times have you been in church where somebody comes up and says i think we ought to and then they walk away and say 
I think somebody ought to. Or they ought to. When we come before God in the presence, understanding His presence and understanding what He wants for a church and a church body and a community, we go to Him in prayer. And there needs to be a group of people in this room that step up and open the treasure chest of heaven and say, God, I want to access prayer because I'm burdened by what I see, not just in church, but I'm burdened by what I see in our community and our nation. So who will it be? Who is the one? Who is the small group that's going to do that? Are you part of that? And so this is where I want us to go today. In just a moment, we'll stand and, and some of us will sing and some of us will be praying. But I want to tell you this altar is open. And we talked about it last week a little bit. This altar is not a place of shame. This altar is a place of doing business with God and nailing it down and not saying, God, I'm coming, uh, I'm coming to this altar not so everybody can look at me and understand something about my life it's coming before god and saying god i want to be humble enough to come before you and nail down the decision that you're calling me to so this is not a bad place and if anybody looks at this and says well that person's going forward because they need to get their life together then they need to repent and understand they may need to be at the altar as well this altar is a glorious place it's a place of grace. It's a place where, where mercy is, is, is boasted. It's kind of put on a billboard for us saying, God, you are merciful and you are grace, full of grace and you are faithful. And I can come before you in this spot using the treasure that is a heavenly treasure and come before you and realize that you are God and you are good. And so as we, as we go through this time of commitment, I want to ask you, is there one that is burdened? Are there several that are burdened about the idea of revival and awakening? Are there some that will come and pray here in the front? Are there some that may have realized, hey, I don't have a relationship with Christ, and if I prayed, it wouldn't go anywhere, and I need to establish that this morning. If you're in that spot, I want to invite you to come and just say, I need Christ in my life. I want to have a relationship with Him. Because there are some in this room that be, would be glad to explain it to you and just take the time to walk you through that. And then there may be others in this room who say, you know what, I've never joined this church. I've been coming for a while. Or, or maybe you've come for the first time and you say, I need to join this fellowship because I want to be part of the corporate body that is praying for revival and wanting to reach our community. Maybe you just need to come and say, I or we need to join this morning. So whatever God leads you to do, would you stand and be obedient to Him as we sing together? Let's pray as we get ready for that. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.